Welcome to Reversing Hashimoto show. I am your show host Dr. Anshul Gupta, the world expert in Hashimoto's disease. I help people reverse their thyroid conditions by making personalized functional medicine plans. You can work with me with any part of the country now by making virtual functional medicine appointments. To book an appointment, look at the show notes. In this show, I am going to get experts from all over the world. who are going to share latest information that will help you to reclaim your life back from dreadful thyroid disease so welcome here and today we have dr eric osansky over here with us welcome over here thank you thank you so much dr gupta appreciate you having me here oh it's our pleasure let me introduce you first so dr eric osansky is a chiropractor clinical nutritionist and a certified functional medicine practitioner who helps people recover from thyroid and autoimmune thyroid conditions he is author of the books natural treatment solutions for hyperthyroidism and graves disease and hashimoto's triggers and is a host of the save my thyroid podcast he was personally diagnosed in 2008 with graves disease and after taking a natural treatment approach has been in remission since 2009 after seeing how well natural treatment methods helped with his condition he began using these natural thyroid treatment protocols to help others with different types of thyroid and autoimmune thyroid conditions including hyperthyroidism graves disease hypothyroidism and hashimoto's thyroiditis wow welcome over here dr eric yeah thanks again thanks again dr gupta look forward to this interview and hopefully sharing a lot of valuable information to the listeners Oh yes, you know like I'm like always uh, looking for good information and I'm looking for today's because I think a lot of people want to know about antibodies in Hashimoto's and Graves disease and how to improve them. So we will talk about all of that stuff but before that you know I would like to hear your story of you know how you went to this autoimmune thyroid condition of Graves and how you were able to heal from it. So if you please can share that with us. Sure. So As you mentioned in 2008 I was diagnosed with Graves disease uh, initially hyperthyroidism then I went to an endocrinologist and and she tested the antibodies that we're going to talk about and in, in my case what's called the thyroid stimulating immunoglobulins were elevated along with the hyperthyroid condition and that's diagnostic of Graves disease and I knew right away I was going to take a natural approach now I wasn't confident honestly I was I was I was a little bit skeptical and nervous about whether it would work because I at that time I didn't know anybody specifically with Graves disease who had restored their health but you know long story short I just um changed my diet you know my, my being a chiropractor I felt like at the time I was eating well but then looking back definitely was room for improvement did things to manage stress and you know just um took some supplements you know just made a lot of diet lifestyle changes um certain supplements did some testing to to find some of my triggers and and we'll I'm sure talk about that during uh this uh this interview here yeah definitely a scary process as it is with anybody with I think any autoimmune condition and again even though I I I was a natural health you know still am a natural healthcare practitioner but um you know just I was like I said I was skeptical I I I wasn't sure if it would work but I knew that the conventional approach with both Graves and Hashimoto's is to treat the thyroid and this is more of an immune system condition so uh so yeah 2008 I was diagnosed and that in 2008 2009 
is when I was on my journey. And as you mentioned, I've been in remission since 2009 from Graves disease. Wow, that is amazing. I'm sure a lot of people will feel relieved, you know, by hearing that there are natural methods, you know, by which you can go into remission. So that is great. So now let's talk about, you know, like these autoimmune thyroid conditions, because I think there is a big spectrum of these autoimmune thyroid condition. And let's kind of, you know, clear some of the terminology so people have a better understanding. So autoimmune thyroid conditions, you know, that we're talking about here is Hashimoto's as well as, you know, the second one is a Graves disease. So why don't you tell us a little bit more about those, like how they are different and how they are kind of also similar at the same time. Sure. So as you mentioned, they're both immune system conditions, autoimmune conditions, and that's the, you know, that's a big similarity, but they symptom wise and thyroid hormone level wise, they present in different ways. So with Graves disease, that's typically associated with hyperthyroidism, where you have a depressed TSH, which is thyroid stimulating hormone, and that's a pituitary hormone. And then you have the thyroid hormone levels, the free T3, free T4, the thyroid hormones. And so these are commonly elevated with hyperthyroidism. And then with Hashimoto's, Hashimoto's, sometimes you get thyroid hormone levels lower. Sometimes they're more subclinical where they're within the normal range or the, at least the lab range. And, but many times not within the optimal range. And so, but the TSH is commonly elevated in Hashimoto's and it could take years for that to reach that point. You know, a lot of, most of the time, I would say, if not all the time, there's that underlying autoimmune process that takes years to develop, or at least years to show on a thyroid panel. So someone might develop antibodies and it might take five, 10, 15 years for the thyroid to be affected. And uh, most, most practitioners won't test the antibodies. So again, hyperthyroidism with Graves, hypothyroidism with Hashimoto's or many times subclinical hypothyroidism with Hashimoto's, and then the antibodies differ. So I don't know if you want me to yet get into the different types of antibodies and, and link them. Yeah. to. Yeah. Let's, okay. let's talk about the antibodies at the same time. Sure. So, so first of all, what is an antibody? So an antibody, it's a Y-shaped protein that is part of an immune system response to an antigen. And an antigen is a foreign substance that causes an immune response. And, you know, examples of antigens could include, you know, food proteins, pathogenic bacteria, even chemicals. And so with autoimmunity, the antibodies bind to the body's own tissues, but they don't cause damage to the, to the tissues. And so with Hashimoto's, you have typically, you have either what's called TPO antibodies, which are thyroid peroxidase antibodies and or anti-thyroid globulin antibodies. So TPO antibodies are the most common type of thyroid antibody. And you also see those in, in many cases of Graves disease as well. Uh, when I dealt with Graves, I actually did not have the TPO antibodies, but I do see it a lot of my Graves disease patients. But very common with Hashimoto's, uh, the statistics show like 80 to 90% of people with Hashimoto's have the positive TPO antibodies. And so TPO or thyroid peroxidase is an enzyme that's important in the production of thyroid hormone. So what, when you have those elevated TPO antibodies, that indicates that the immune system is, is damaging this process, which over time can lead to hypothyroidism. And the anti-thyroid globulin antibodies, so those are more specific to Hashimoto's. So not everybody with Hashimoto's has those antibodies. So I guess to summarize what Hashimoto's, typically it's diagnosed by elevated TSH and either elevated TPO antibodies 
or thyroglobulin antibodies. So you only have to have one of those elevated, but many people do have both of those elevated. And then Graves' disease, you have the elevated thyroid stimulating immunoglobulins or TSI, which is a type of TSH receptor antibody. This is what I had. This is the antibody I had. And, and again, that's very common with Graves because that's what's diagnostic. But as I mentioned earlier, a number of people with Graves also have the TPO antibodies. Uh, so if someone, again, has low de or depressed TSH levels, elevated thyroid hormone levels, and elevated TSI, thyroid stimulating immunoglobulins, then that's typically diagnostic of Graves' disease. Some people have subclinical Graves, not as common as subclinical Hashimoto's. So with subclinical Graves' disease, you'll see TSH depressed and elevated TSI, but you'll see normal thyroid hormone levels. And those are the main differences as far as testing goes, you know, what you would see on a thyroid panel and looking at the antibodies. And then the symptoms also are different. So with the symptoms, with hyperthyroidism, when I dealt with hyperthyroidism, I had an elevated resting heart rate, heart palpitations, and, uh, you know, I lost a lot of weight, lost 42 pounds, had a voracious appetite, and, uh, you know, had some tremors and, you know, some looser stools, which are, are common. And uh, some people have what's called thyroid eye disease, which is related to more of the immune system than the hyperthyroidism. And then what Hashimoto's, some common symptoms, as you're well aware of, fatigue, brain fog, weight gain, coldness, uh, you know, some of the more common ones, uh, constipation, uh, you know, of course, there could be, you know, many other symptoms with both of these conditions. And, you know, where, where again, they are, this, they are similar is that they're both autoimmune conditions that affect the thyroid, even though they're affecting the thyroid in different ways. The reason why someone has antibodies, I mean, there's a few different ways and we'll, we'll get to it, but you know, that the triggers, the triggers are very big, which is why I wrote a book, Hashimoto's triggers. And, um, and, you know, you, you of course talk about it too, in, in your book as well. And, uh, you know, when dealing with your, your, your patients, you know, you, you address fine, address the triggers. And, uh, you know, we could of course chat about those, uh, but those are essentially some of the similarities and differences between Graves and Hashimoto's, which of course we could expand on even further. Awesome. I think that's a great kind of summary about, you know, so people have understanding about how the autoimmune diseases are there and especially focusing more on the antibodies, as you said, uh, because not a lot of people know that, you know, these antibodies are present and with simple lab tests, each and every labs, you know, can do it. So, you know, that's a good part, part of it. The other question that a lot of people actually have is that why suddenly, you know, like my body is producing antibodies. Obviously, the conventional medicine has no answer for it. No reason, according to them, that why your body produce antibodies. So tell us a little bit more about it, that why, you know, like antibodies are being produced. Sure. Well, you know, there are both genetic and environmental factors. And it's important to say that not everybody who has a genetic predisposition to any autoimmune condition, not only Graves' or Hashimoto's, but rheumatoid arthritis, multiple sclerosis. You know, a lot of people have that genetic predisposition, but they won't necessarily develop this condition. So there's something called the triad of autoimmunity, which really explains why autoimmunity develops. And the three, three components of this triad, one of them is that genetic predisposition. And unfortunately, we can't change this, but the good news is we can Affect we can positively affect these other two components. The second component is exposure to one or more environmental trigger. And again, we could talk more about the different triggers. 
Um, and then the third component is an increase in intestinal permeability, the medical term for, well, that's a medical term. And, you know, the term everybody's familiar with is a leaky gut. So that's also, you know, that's also known as increase in intestinal permeability. So if someone has that genetic predisposition, and then they're exposed to a certain environmental trigger in the presence of a leaky gut, then that will set the stage for autoimmunity. And that's essentially how autoimmunity develops. There's, there's other factors like what's called regulatory T cells, which help to keep autoimmunity in check. And if you have a decrease in those Tregs or again, regular T cells, that also can make someone more susceptible, but you still have to have that tried in effect. Again, that genetic predisposition, exposure to one or more triggers and that leaky gut. Absolutely. So that's great. You know, like, so out of those three, you know, like, as you mentioned, genetics, we don't have much control over it. Basically it's the genes, right? But I think the other two we do. I mean, in other interviews, we have already spoken about leaky guts. Let's talk about the triggers a little bit, like what kind of triggers, uh, the environmental triggers that you see uh, that people get exposed to and can lead to the production of antibodies. Sure. So there are different types of triggers. There's different categories of triggers. So food is definitely one of those components, one of those categories. And so most people probably who are listening to this are familiar with gluten being a potential factor. And most natural healthcare practitioners, most functional medicine doctors will recommend for people with different types of autoimmune conditions, including Hashimoto's and Graves to avoid gluten, to strictly avoid gluten. Because even in the argument, some people bring even a small amount of gluten will cause problems. And th the truth is it depends on the person. Some people might be able to get away with a little bit of gluten exposure, but there's really no need to eat gluten, no good reason to eat gluten and, or to eat foods that have gluten. And so really ideally want to be, try to be strict when it comes to consuming gluten, especially if you have something like a condition such as celiac disease, but even if you don't have celiac disease, it could still cause inflammation, uh, contribute to that leaky gut as well, but also could be a direct trigger. And then dairy, corn, the literature also shows that salt you know, again, salt is associated like too much salt with high blood pressure, but the research shows it can increase what's called TH17 cells, which are associated with autoimmunity. So if you eat too much sodium chloride, that also could cause problems. And it doesn't mean you should cut out all salt from your diet. I do commonly recommend sea salt to patients, but you just don't want to overdo it. Um, the bigger concern is like packaged foods. Most packaged foods have sodium in there. And um, so again, um, that can potentially cause problems. And then so food is that, you know, one category, and then another category would be stress, you know, so we all deal with stress. And, you know, many times, it's not really the stressor itself, but just our ability to handle the stress. And so while if you could reduce the stresses in your life, that's great, that's wonderful, definitely try to do that. But if you can't, and many people can't reduce the stressors, either way, you want to focus on improving stress handling skill. And usually what I recommend is taking at least five minutes per day, every single day to manage stress in some way, such as doing things like yoga, meditation, deep breathing, biofeedback. There's so many different techniques that you could use, and you just got to choose one that you're willing to do. A lot of people who utilize stress management techniques, they only do it, let's say two or three days per week. Maybe they do yoga a couple of days per week or, you know, deep breathing, but you want to get into the routine of doing it daily. And that's why I usually recommend just starting with five minutes because everybody, just about everybody could 
block out five minutes. And then once you're in a routine of five minutes per day of stress management, then you could gradually increase the duration to 10, 15 minutes, even you know more than that if you want. But just first get in that root, into that routine to doing it every day. And then, you know, so sh- um, stress is a second one. Infections could be including the current infection we're dealing with uh, these days, you know, other types of viruses and, and bacteria and parasites in some conditions, parasites in some, some situations, you know, it really depends. H. pylori, which is, uh, you know, of course, in the gut can cause problems. So infections and uh, chemicals such as mercury can cause problems. Some of them might not be direct triggers, but glyphosate, which is the one of the ingredients in the herbicide Roundup, you know, that could infect the gut, affect, negatively affect the gut microbiome, potentially cause a leaky gut, which is one of the factors of, tri- of the triad of autoimmunity. So, um, and then xenoestrogens as uh, found in plastic water bottles, even like thermal paper receipts have BPA. And then there's other types of xenoestrogens and so that's, uh, so the chemicals would be the fourth and, you know, nutrient deficiency. So in your book, you, you, you talk about nutrient deficiencies as being like a category, you know, like one of the categories of triggers. And, you know, I, I guess I've always considered them as a, not maybe a direct trigger, but a contributing factor, but either way, nutrient deficiencies, if you're low in like selenium, like there's definitely studies that show that supplementing with selenium could decrease thyroid antibodies in some cases and vitamin D. Uh, even though it's more of a pro-hormone than a vitamin, but still you want healthy vitamin Ds for a healthy immune system. And, you know, there's, there's other nutrients that are extremely important. Others as well, like toxic mold, which, you know, would fall more under like the environmental toxin category, estrogen dominance. So what I mentioned isn't all inclusive, but those are some of the main categories of triggers. And I threw in a few specific ones as well. That's great. And from what my understanding is that is that the triggers can be very common, you know, for both Graves and Hashimoto's, it doesn't really matter which one you have, but the triggers can be very similar. Is that correct? That is true. I mean, in the research, some triggers are more closely associated with Graves and others more closely associated with Hashimoto's. Like there's a case study that shows that blastocystis hominis could potentially trigger Hashimoto's. And there's nothing in the literature showing that it could trigger graves. But I will say I've seen graves patients with blastocystis, and that seemed to be the trigger, like when addressed in the parasite, you know, the person got into remission. But then there's also been cases where what seems to be the trigger, like the parasite, and the person doesn't get into remission, like the antibodies don't really change. And that's saying that there's something else going on, like just because someone has H. pylori, which could be a trigger or Epstein-Barr, it doesn't mean if they have it, it's definitely the trigger. So sometimes you do have to do more detective work. And sometimes you just got to see how the person responds. If someone has graves and they have H. pylori, I'm usually going to treat the H. pylori. And, you know, but there also might be other imbalances at the same time. So we might be treating the H. pylori, correcting nutrient deficiencies, focusing on adrenals, and hopefully the combination of that will help to, you know, get the person remission. And if not, then we might need to do further testing or, or maybe retest, make sure that the adrenals look better, that the H. pylori has been eradicated or really any infection that you're treating. So, um, so yeah. That's great. Now let's talk a little bit about you brought an important topic about or interesting drug about salt, right? And that's where the associated thing about iodine comes into place. And, you know, obviously everybody said whether what salt is best for me, sea salt or Himalayan salt, pink salt, 
or you know iodized table salt so where are you with all those things especially you know with the iodine you know content and do you recommend people taking iodine supplements or you are more on the side okay well no 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 too much iodine is bad what do you think sure so with the salt question i usually recommend the celtic sea salt the c e l t i c many i'm sure are familiar who are listening to this and so that doesn't have the iodine but um yeah if you get iodized salts obviously that will now is a small amount of iodine going to cause problems in people with with graves hashimotos i mean in most cases probably not but you know it's refined i like the celtic sea salt the main reason i recommend it not just because of the you know that it doesn't have iodine um i wouldn't be too concerned about that in the salt but you know also it has like all the minerals in there and it's just a healthier form of of, of sea salt but question with iodine i i actually had a really good experience with iodine so it's like one of those things where to answer your question i i usually don't recommend iodine supplements because it could potentially be a trigger or could exacerbate graves or hashimotos and i wrote about this in my book hashimotos triggers but it's funny because when i dealt with graves i attended conferences and back then 2008 it was more pro iodine so they were like recommending like higher dose iodine and even now some practitioners recommend like really high dose iodine but back then you know i i took higher doses of iodine i did a urinary test you know to see if i was deficient in iodine and it's called the iodine loading test which some people might be familiar with and that actually involves taking iodine before doing the test and measuring the excretion over 24 hours and again i had a good experience with iodine so i figured you know everybody needs to test for iodine and if deficient take iodine you know like supplement with iodine so that's what i did for the first few years of practice and again i I saw mixed results. I saw people who did fine with the iodine and and people who got better, but to be fair, they were doing a lot of other things, not just the iodine. They were changing their diet, managing stress, you know, finding removing triggers as we so far have mentioned. So it's hard to say, you know, like I could say for sure it's not the iodine cuz now fast forward, I'm more conservative with the iodine. Like I don't typically recommend iodine supplements. There might be exceptions, but there's definitely risk with iodine, you know, like taking, you know, especially like higher dose iodine. Like sometimes a person will come into my practice and they might see earlier articles I wrote like years ago when I was, you know, more and I'm I'm still I would say I'm not anti-iodine because again, iodine is important and and some practitioners will say never like if you have Graves or Hashimoto's never have iodine. And I I don't necessarily believe in that, but I would be cautious especially with iodine supplementation and then even in some cases you know very high food sources like seaweed kelp the sea vegetables might cause some problems it, it it depends on the person I'm sure there are people you know who are tuning in and are like hey I've taken high dose iodine and I know it's helped and I you know I I took I had a goiter you know like swelling of not not well actually I did have a goiter but just give an example of like where I've had people just um take iodine on their own and say yeah it helps shrink my goiter but i've also had patients uh, you know and non-patients who said you know that they took iodine and that was when their condition began whether it's hashimotos or hyperthyroidism and you just don't know what category you're going to fall into so if you are going to do anything with iodine definitely work with a practitioner but you know again just be cautious because there are still practitioners you know like some i mean again i don't want to say anything bad about other practitioners that's you know th- th- if they're having success success with it you know that's great but i guess 
you know, again, like I said, I was one of those practitioners that was recommending a high dose iodine. And just, you know, over the years, I've seen, you know, or the first few years, because like I said, over the last, you know, few years, you know, I, I can't say that's standard in my practice. So, so yeah, it's a tricky situation because some people are just anti-iodine or pro-iodine. I can't say I'm either one, like I'm not anti-iodine. I'm cautious. I, I guess you could say I'm pro-iodine because again, it's all the minerals are important, but I think you need to be cautious when it comes to separate iodine supplementation or eating, again, sea vegetables, foods, very high in iodine. Absolutely. I'm also on the same boat that, you know, I think I'm in the middle. That's what I call myself that, you know, yes, we all need some amount of iodine, but we don't need tons of it. And as you said, it depends on person to person. So absolutely. So now the next question a lot of people have is that, can we reduce antibodies, right? Because again, when they have been to their regular doctors, they have been told that once you have antibodies, you know, you don't reduce them or they only reduce once your thyroid is completely destroyed. But you and me know that, okay, there are that, you know, it can be reduced. So do you see that in your practice that the antibodies do reduce with the protocol that you work on the patients? Definitely. And that's, that's what happened to me when I dealt with Graves disease and, you know, my, my antibodies, the thyroid stimulating immunoglobulins, they normalized and over the years, I've helped many people with the antibodies um, normalized. Now, sometimes it's challenging. I don't want to make like it's always easy and you just uh, change your diet and, and take a few supplements and your antibodies uh, normalize. And sometimes it's a struggle. Sometimes you think you're doing everything. So, and I think that's the case with most practitioners. You got patients where, you know, the antibodies you know, decrease and, and normalize. Others where the antibodies decrease, but they don't normalize. And others where they're just kind of like a roller coaster and it's, uh, it's, you know, it's looking better, you know, on one test, but then it increases. And that's usually an indication that there's still, you know, either you haven't removed the trigger or there's a lot of inflammation. One thing I want to mention is I like to try, of course, to get the antibodies normal, but there are other things also that are important, like, you know, the person feeling well. And I mean, there are times when a person's antibodies might not normalize and, you know, but they're, they're feeling great. I guess the point is that even if they normalize, I don't look at it as a cure. Like I, I've been in remission since 2009 and, you know, I, I do test my antibodies annually just to make sure they're in check, but there's always a chance of relapse, whether the antibodies normalize or not. So, but obviously it'd be, it's great when you look at the thyroid panel and everything, thyroid panel and antibodies are normal, not just the thyroid panel, you know, you want to dive into some of the reasons or, you know, what, what to do, like in order to decrease those antibodies then? Yes, let's do that. I think everybody's waiting to hear about what they can do to improve and reduce those antibodies. So please share that information. Sure. So we, we spoke about the triad of autoimmunity, as we both mentioned, you can't do anything for the genetics. And that's why I don't like to use the word cure, but you can do things to find or remove the trigger and heal the gut. I won't get into great detail with healing the gut because you mentioned that some of the other speakers focus on healing the gut. But when it comes to the triggers, I like to use testing. So I do prefer testing. Now, when it comes to food, I know that you do both like an elimination diet and you do, uh, I interviewed Dr. Gupta. So, so I know, know, know everything about his practice and all that. So you do an elimination diet, you do some food sensitivity testing. And again, no, no method is perfect. So elimination diet is, you know, I like elimination diet, eliminating the most common allergens and food that could affect gut healing. 
And so that if you do elimination diet, you don't have to do any testing for that. And again, maybe in some cases you might eliminate major triggers doing that. And, and there are some people just doing that alone will get significant reduction of the antibodies, sometimes normalization of the antibodies, especially eliminating some of the ones I mentioned, gluten, dairy, corn, you know, salt. And, you know, that's not to say other foods can't cause inflammation, just according to the literature, those are the main foods that are that seem to be potential autoimmune triggers, people could react to any food. And that's the benefit potentially of food sensitivity testing is, you know, maybe someone reacts to broccoli or something that is not part of an elimination diet, and they do the food sensitivity testing, I guess, food sensitivity testing, they are a bit pricey. And then there's the chance of false results. But that's the reason you do both the elimination diet and the food sensitivity testing. And so definitely everybody at the very least should change their diet. And that's something that, you know, again, people could do right away, you know, you could do that today, you could do that, you know, next week, some people might want to set a date, like mentally, you know, just say, Okay, I'm going to start, you know, doing it the first of next month, um, as far as a dietary change. And for some, it's more of a challenge than others. If someone's eating a lot of fast food and refined foods, be more challenging, they might have to just start eliminating certain foods slowly, and then incorporating more whole healthy foods, more vegetables, stress. So let's move on to stress. So stress, you know, again, that is something also you could do without testing. Although I will say I do like adrenal testing, I'd like to do either adrenal saliva testing or dried urine testing, such as a Dutch test that also, you know, both of those tests look at the circadian rhythm of cortisol, cortisol should be at the highest in the morning, gradually decrease at the end of the day. And, you know, you could do a blood test, but it's only going to look at a single sample. And so, you know, stress management, even if you don't do testing, you could do that on your own. But when it comes to certain supplements, you know, I, I base that on the pattern. So I don't have like, you know, one protocol for everyone for like adrenals. Like when I dealt with Graves disease, I did an adrenal saliva test back then and everything was low. My cortisol was low. My DHA was low. And, you know, there was some, a few other markers on the test I did that was low. So in my case, I took licorice root, which is not a good fit for everyone. You know, if you have high cortisol, you probably don't want to take it. If you have hypertension, high blood pressure, that's contraindicated. And, you know, I took nutrients as well, B vitamins, uh, you know, vitamin C, uh, some will take adrenal glandulars, especially if, again, if they have like lower adrenals. And then if someone has higher cortisol uh, agents such as phosphatidylserine, uh, you know, relora, some people take ashwagandha, you know, there's some controversy with ashwagandha and thyroid health. Uh, you know, it's a member of the nightshade family. So if someone's following like autoimmune paleo, they might do perfectly fine with ashwagandha, but you probably want to know that it's a, a part of the nightshade family. And, and maybe you do want to avoid that. Well, if you're following strict AIP, a strict autoimmune paleo. And then um, some people with hyperthyroidism, the ashwagandha could affect the HPT axis, the hypothalamic pituitary thyroid axis. And some may feel, you know, become actually a little bit hi more hyperthyroid. Again, I don't see it too commonly, but you know, some people do experience that. The good news is when you stop the ashwagandha, typically those symptoms stop, but, but ashwagandha overall, I, I love ashwagandha. And so um, just mentioning some of the, I guess you could say potential risks. And so doing testing is a big part of my practice. I just mentioned some things you could do on your own. I mentioned those, some of the testing, like adrenal testing, there's comprehensive stool panel. Like if you want to look in the gut deeper and see if someone has 
H. pylori or parasites. I mean, you could test for H. pylori by itself, but the test, the comprehensive stool panels look at a lot more and give a lot more information. And, you know, if you suspect you have toxic molds, you know, you might want to test your house for mold, but there's also urinary panels to see, you know, the levels of mycotoxins you have in your body. Again, nutrients, testing for nutrients, you know, especially vitamin D. It's sometimes hard to test for nutrients. I know there's I think you use like the NutriVal and the SpectraCell. So those, those are options. You know, some of these you could do in the blood at, at the, at your local lab, like an iron panel, vitamin D, you could definitely, you know, do locally RBC magnesium, but some of the others are more challenging to test for. And, you know, again, chemicals are challenging too. You know, there's, you know, hair testing, there's urine testing, um, blood testing more for acute heavy metals. And then there's like one called the GPL Tox from Great Plains Lab, you know, looks at um, different markers, different metabolites related to chemicals. Problem is there's too many chemicals to test for, you know, um, Cyrex Labs. I think, I think you use Cyrex Labs for some testing. They, you know, they have like their array number 11, I think it is, which measures the immune response to different environmental chemicals, whereas most other tests are looking at the levels, but you know, if your immune system is reacting, then you definitely are having a problem um, with the chemicals, but you don't want to go crazy with the testing. I will say that. So I like to use testing to try to find triggers, but I don't recommend thousands of dollars worth of testing to my patients. Um, I, I'm actually very conservative. I start with just a few tests. At least that's what I recommend. Sometimes a patient wants to do more testing and, you know, if they really want to, that's fine, but I'm more conservative. And if we find, you know, what I think are some potential triggers, we'll look to address those. And then if the person's health improves, you know, the thyroid panel improves, other areas improve, you know, the antibodies decrease, you know, then, um, then again, we don't need to do further testing. If things aren't improving, then we, you know, again, that's where I'll look into doing other testing, of course, making sure the person is following the recommendations. So yeah, I mean, to summarize kind of like how to lower antibodies, it's simple, but it's not simple. You know, the simple part of it is you got to find the triggers and correct other underlying imbalances, you know, and then, you know, pretty much address the triggers and, you know, again, the underlying imbalances. And then when you do that, most of the time, the antibodies will decrease. And usually it is a gradual process. It's not like one month later, antibodies are high and then, you know, they're normal. Usually it does take some time, but if they're not improving, so what happens if, you know, some people, again, I'm sure they're tuning into this and, you know, they're, they're thinking, well, I've already, you know, I'm following a great diet, whether it's autoimmune paleo diet or regular paleo diet or ketogenic, you know, I'm eating really well, you know, I'm managing stress. And, uh, you know, I've already done some testing, maybe some people I'm sure, you know, watching this have seen other natural healthcare practitioners, and still I'm not feeling 100%. And, you know, antibodies, you know, still are, you know, not where they need to be. There's maybe they have decreased a little bit, maybe they haven't decreased, maybe they decreased a lot, but they're still pretty high. You know, if someone has thyroid peroxidase antibodies of 800, and they're now 300, you know, that's still well above the reference range. And like I said, you don't want to get too caught up on antibodies, you know, and I do, I get caught up because I want to see them normalized. But, you know, again, if they're not decreasing, then that's when I usually will say, you know, let's dig deeper. And that's up to the patient, the patient, the antibodies might still not be normal, but they're feeling so much better. And, you know, they, everything else is better, but the antibodies, but I will say a lot of people want to go further and see is, are there anything, anything else they could do? 
And usually there are other things, because like I said, I usually start conservatively. And if they have been to another practitioner before seeing me, again, there usually are things that the other practitioner hasn't done. And I'm sure same thing with you, you know, when they see, you know, if they've seen another practitioner, they usually haven't done everything. And, you know, you're, you're pretty comprehensive in what you do. So yeah, do you have anything to add to that? Uh, as far as lowering antibodies? Well, I think those that is a very comprehensive list. You know, I always believe that, you know, if the antibody levels are not improving or the patient is not improving, then there is certainly an underlying trigger that has not yet been addressed. So that's what I believe in, you know. And as you said, you know, we all work on these triggers on a different fashion or different plane. And I think you currently pointed out was that you know, we just have to dig deeper. So I think that's what in the end is needed. You know, if, if for some reason that patient is not moving in the right direction, then I guess we just have to all dig deeper into finding that why. That's what I do is maybe that's what it looks like. You also do the same thing. Yeah. And again, like I said, I don't want to elaborate too much on the gut because other people have done that. But again, maybe you found the triggers, but the gut still hasn't been fully healed and you need to find the trigger specifically to the gut. You know, what maybe something is specifically affecting the gut. Maybe you're getting, still getting exposed to, you know, more glyphosate than you think you're getting exposed to, or, you know, another chemical, or you have a hidden gut infection. So again, healing that gut. And just, I'll say one thing about healing the leaky gut. A lot of people focus on re-inoculation with probiotics, you know, just on replacing with digestive enzymes, repairing the gut, they'll drink bone broth. And those are all, you know, all could be beneficial but they don't focus on removing the factor that's causing the leaky gut. So they're just, you know, taking probiotics, maybe prebiotics, a digestive enzyme, taking L-glutamine or drinking bone broth and the like, I'm doing everything I can to heal the gut. But what is causing that leaky gut? You know, if you don't remove that factor, maybe you're getting exposed to gluten and you just don't know it. Or again, a hitting gut infection is common. I've had countless patients who didn't have digestive symptoms and yet they you know, had H. pylori or, you know, parasite. And some will argue, well, you know, if it wasn't causing symptoms, maybe not address it. And again, that's another debate, I guess, uh, you know, maybe for another time. But again, if, if the antibodies, especially if they're not decreasing, and we've done a number of things, and then we do testing and find, you know, gut infection, and then maybe they're like, oh, my gut feels fine. But sometimes you will get other symptoms outside of the gut, you know, maybe you'll get some brain fog or, you know, fatigue. So you can't always assume that H. pylori is going to cause heartburn and parasites are always going to cause diarrhea, so-and-so. But so I'll just say that you want to make sure your gut is healed and make sure to address the factor that's causing the leaky gut. I agree with that. You know, like gut is such an important thing. And sometimes I just go back to the gut, you know, like after I have done a lot of things and still people are not getting better, I said, let's go back to the gut and see if we have addressed each and everything. And you currently pointed out that a lot of people say, well, my gut feels really good. I said, well, let's just look because sometimes by looking, you know, we can find stuff like parasites or a virus or an infection or a bad bacteria or H. pylori. You just never know. So definitely, yes, you know, like I think we all can do better with gut healing. So that is definitely a good point. So gosh, I mean, you know, I think we covered a lot of good stuff over here, like a lot of good things that people can do at this point of time to improve their antibodies. The important point over here, I just want everybody to again, remember is that you can reduce antibodies, you know, whether you have Graves or Hashimoto's, you know, through protocols and do things, you can reduce antibodies and that safeguards your thyroid. So that is a message that I would just want everybody to remember that. 
So I think we covered a lot of good information. If you have any other things which are left that we have not yet covered, or you want to share that? Yeah, I mean, that's as far as lowering antibodies. That's uh, you know pretty much it. Talk about the the triggers, and I guess the only other thing I will say when it comes to the triggers, which again relate to the antibodies. As we spoke about gut infections, sometimes the challenge is you'll do a comprehensive stool panel and they might come back negative. So again, we spoke about the food sensitivity testing also, you know, being not hundred percent accurate. The truth is that no test is hundred percent accurate. So there's always room for, you know, some more than others, but you might do a test and it might come back negative and it might be due to the test itself. Maybe just that day, the, the technician who was working on it. Or again, just like Paris, we don't think about that, but I actually learned that at a conference, there was someone who worked for one of the labs, I think, uh, I think it was Genova Diagnostics. And not to say that they're actually, I like the lab, but just saying, they were saying sometimes they used to work for Genova. I think they were someone who worked with the testing. And they said, sometimes it depends on who's there. Cause once you send in a stool sample, you know, it has to go through a process where they, they look to, it depends if it's DNA based stool testing or other types, but either way, there's some mix up in the procedure or something like that, potentially it could come back with a false negative. But even if they do it perfectly, you know, somewhat parasites sometimes can be difficult to detect, even with something like I use the GI map, uh, which is, you know, more DNA based and the quantitative DNA, but still you could have false negatives with that. Again, that's why you want to work with a practitioner. I guess I'll leave it like that. If you're trying to do it on your own, which hopefully you're not, because you can, people these days can order their own tests, just like they can, you know, of course, order their own supplements. And if they're like, oh, I did all these tests, or maybe you went to another practitioner, they did a gut test and they said, oh, everything's fine. And sometimes maybe I'm not a big fan of treating without seeing on the test, but sometimes it is necessary. So I guess that's the one other thing I, I will add. And yeah. Awesome. Great. Now, can you share, you know, I'm sure a lot of people would like to know where they can find you. So please share where people can find you. Yeah. So I actually have two websites now. So my main website is naturalendocrinesolutions.com. But as uh, Dr. Gupta mentioned earlier, I do have a podcast called Save My Thyroid. You could visit the website, savemythyroid.com and click on podcast, or you could go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify and just type in Save My Thyroid. Then also I have a thyroid checklist, which you can access at thyroidchecklist.com. And it's uh, multiple pages where it goes into more detail about the different triggers, which again are associated with the antibodies. And then one more, or I guess two more resources, my books, my, as he mentioned, Natural Treatment Solutions for Hyperthyroidism and Graves Disease and Hashimoto's Triggers. And again, you can find both of those on Amazon. Awesome. Good. I mean, you have so many resources that each and every one can benefit from. So thank you so much. And thank you so much for sharing all this great information, you know, like, and thank you so much for coming over here. You are welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much. You're doing such great work. I enjoyed your book. You know, it was a wonderful book. So definitely, if you haven't checked out Dr. Gupta's book, definitely do so. And uh, again, thank you for this opportunity. I really do appreciate it. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Take care. You too.